0: Kia ora koutou katoa everyone and welcome to the weekly hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the kaka and Peter Bale. Good to see you Peter in that amazing shirt.
1: Thank you, thank you. Yes, I, I have borrowed it from the legacy of um, Rob Muldoon and one of his uh, APEC meetings, you know, where they always put you in an embarrassing shirt, but um, actually somebody who's very nice to me bought this from the shop in kati and it doesn't have unfortunately Rob Muldoon signed on the inside but uh, it is that kind of shirt that you get when you um, go to Apex.
0: Yes so um at this week just to um give you a heads up on who's going to join us as special guests we have Robert Patman we keep thinking um Ukraine's going to quieten down but Robert Patman will join us again and Peter and Robert will uh
1: talk Excuse me I think he's Professor Robert Patman isn't he Professor Robert Patman but uh, he exactly. better he better not go into the bloody you know just polling thing and start muscling no. on to, wait, it's fine for us to muscle into his territory of you know extreme academic experience and understanding about world affairs but the moment he muscles in on you understanding about the beehive i think you know yep that's a, that's a bridge too far
0: there's going to be so much stuff on ukraine uh, y- y- you'll find it all very useful and uh, and also another special guest uh, on from 4 30 430 to 4 35 we'll be speaking to natalia chabin who is a, a ukrainian academic based at the university of canterbury who covers the whole uh, area of information warfare if you like um, how people mm-hmm. uh, get Uh, change the hearts and minds of people in their own countries and around the world and right now it's not just a a war on the ground it's also a war for the hearts and minds of people all around the world um
1: yeah and as we've said before ben i think it's becoming an extremely dangerous precedent in having not one now but two people who actually know what they're talking about
0: it is good. I'm really interested in finding out more uh, on both fronts really because it really does affect us in so many ways and suddenly world affairs becomes a thing we all we all need to know about and I remember as a kid in part, always wanting to be a Reuters reporter because I read oh, so much. Too. <laughs> I read so much stuff in the papers from that man, Mister Reuters.
1: I know, that- I know. I used to, I, Bernard. I think we were actually joined at, joined at the hip at birth, although it was a number of years apart, unfortunately. But I used to do exactly the same, and my, my I would sit there with my father reading the New Zealand Herald, going over to page six. I think it was was the international news page. One of them. It, one of them had that uh, ridiculous old bearded, uh, mustachioed man who was paid, I think, by Singapore Airlines to write a really ridiculous kind of um, old Pakeha man travels around Southeast Asia story, but or column. But yeah, I used to look at it too, and I would think, God, I'd love to be that person from Reuters, or I'd like to be our old friend, my old friend, at least Bruce Conn from uh, uh, Press from the New Zealand Press Association, reporting from Hong Kong or New York. I mean, international affairs were really important and are really important, and not just from the point of view of selling butter.
0: Yeah, and uh, one of the reasons was that all the newspapers, um, and that's where you got your news in those days, were um, subscribers to New Zealand Press Association. In fact, in many Mm. ways owned it. And that wire pumped out an awful lot of Reuters and other copy which was fantastic for filling the paper. So, what you you read a lot more about international affairs in those days. So, um, well, also
1: Bernard, it's worth, it is worth remembering, and you and I could do an entire series on this. Of course, is that in the olden days, I, coming coming out of the Second World War, Reuters, the largest international news agency of that time, and, and pretty much still now, was owned by the Commonwealth um, Press Associations, NZPA, AAP, and the Press Association in the UK. And the privatization of Reuters, uh, the launching of it on the market in 1984, from memory, when I just joined Reuters, you know, that's how I how I made my first hundred million dollars. Actually, was um, as a twelve year old there, um, and uh, that was how most of the New Zealand newspapers um, renewed all of their presses and went web offset with the dividend yeah. that they received from Reuters going public. Yes. Little known fact, but but true. Now, yeah. Bernard, yes, should we look at domestic affairs for a minute? Well, when we say domestic affairs, they're actually domestic affairs that are very, very heavily, heavily influenced by uh, international factors and by Ukraine. And this is exactly what we've been talking about for ages on this podcast, is how New Zealand is not exempt. Now, this fuel thing this week was kind of interesting, and I felt slightly irritated by it, having gone out the night before, downloaded that gas spy app, and gone and bought the most expensive petrol in New Zealand. Well, actually, the cheapest, most expensive petrol in New Zealand, finding it, you know, I only had to drive uh, practically to Hamilton to buy it in, in Gull, but it saved me about $2.50 from going up the road to BP. We, tell, tell us about what the, the politics of that, Bernard.
0: Yeah, well, you weren't the only one who was queuing. Uh, this is all, it all starts on Thursday night last week where the government got a shock poll result from TVNZ Canta which showed they were behind national for the first time since early 2020, since before COVID. That was the Thursday night. On the Friday night... In fact, on the Friday morning, the managing director of Waitomo, which is alongside Gull, the other discount... Well, they have some
1: very nice caves, I think, with some worms.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. But they're also a, a fast-growing and quite innovative chain of discount petrol stores, mm-hmm. uh, if you could call them stores, automated. So, or, or,
1: um, or call them discount, actually. Yeah. yeah but carry
0: on. And... Um, mm-hmm. Jimmy uh, Jimmy, um, Ormsby put out a Facebook note, 1007 on Friday, last Friday, saying, I've just had the biggest wholesale price increase I've ever had in my career. I'm going to have to pass it on to all you consumers, Mm -hmm. and I'll put up the price at six o'clock tonight. So you have um, eight hours to get in there and fill up your tanks with the cheap fuel before I changed the price at six o'clock. Well, this went out to about 50,000 people on Facebook. And before you know it, it was viral and a couple of million saw it. Mm-hmm. Immediately, queues formed outside the Waitomo stations and then in every other station because because a process of Chinese whispers meant that everyone said or heard that there were fuel shortages, that the price of fuel was going to go up. And people sat in queues for two <laughs> or three hours on Friday <laughs> afternoon. By Friday, Did anyone see Clark Gayford in there? Uh, no, no. Um, the uh, he'd,
1: he'd probably probably already filled up the outboard. Could probably yeah. had advanced knowledge, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. Um, I, I'd be, if I was him, I'd be out fishing. But um, certainly uh, that uh, then turned up at the top of the the six o'clock news on Friday night, and the politicians watch the six o'clock news as like a hawk because they're they're the place where you get big volumes of people who have who get a. An emotional um, story to change their political views. And essentially, Mm -hmm. they saw chaos, cues higher cost of living on Friday night, people st- sitting in queues uh, for hours and hours trying to save themselves a couple of bucks from a... a and, and it wasn't
1: just footage from 1972.
0: No, no. It was um, happening right now. It was a crisis. Mm. And I mean, so, in
1: New Zealand, a, a gas queue would look like 1972 because we'd still be in Morris Miners and things. But yeah, That's, that's
0: right, with one of those stickers on the front saying... Um, uh, Carlos, Carlos, uh, Carlos mm. Day. You know, mm. Wednesday's mm. my day. Odds,
1: odds and evens, yeah.
0: Yeah, and so what we uh, what we saw on Friday night was a scenes of crisis, and, and even as recently as the <laughs> Thursday, the um, finance minister had said we're not interested in cutting the fuel taxes. But by Sunday night, suck it up. Suck
1: it up. I think was what he said, right?
0: Yeah, to, to that effect. Suck it up
1: and suck it up, and, and this would demonstrate a political agility that we simply don't have. He said for five minutes, is that right?
0: Yeah, and then by Sunday afternoon, evening, uh, the 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 word started going out that there was potentially uh, some mm. compensation being planned in cabinet by the time we got to the cabinet post cabinet presser on monday the government had decided just like that to cut the fuel excise levy by 25 cents a litre from midnight on monday tuesday so that yeah. now bernard i reckon just you know everybody's being very cynical about this you know
1: kp is saying it's reactionary politics because what he really means is reactive politics because reactionary politics is a very different thing but i'm not not that i'm a human dictionary or anything but i thought that was actually a very deft and intelligent reaction it was a, a little bit too reactive in a sense except it did the job, didn't
0: it? Yeah, and um, certainly people were happy. And by the time it, it it got in there, the actual oil price had dropped as well. So mm. um, from a, a pure retail politics point of view, it made sense. And it did answer some of those uh, uh, challenges around cost of living. I also thought the announcement about halving public transport, bus and, and uh, train fares was a very clever uh, nod to the uh, Climate Change Brigade, Pain. I did
1: too. Well, I, I th- wasn't just climate change, Brigade, but, but it's also an issue of fairness. That, you know, not everybody does have does have cars. Not everybody, need, well, of course you do it if you're in Auckland, but, you know, not everybody does. And, you know, although much as I might look at it, I do not have, and whoever says this, I do not have one of those gold Winston Peters tickets. So I was rather keen that it happened on Waiheke, but, the ferry to Waiheke, but unfortunately that didn't happen.
0: No, no, luckily for um, all of the millennials in the audience who are about to see uh, the price of a ticket uh, of the... Um, uh, the boomers uh, on their trips for uh, wine and dinner at, in Waikiki halving. Uh, no, the, the ferries uh, were not included in that half price thing because it's a bit more yeah. of an arm's length uh, arrangement.
1: But the good thing is for the, the petrol, the price of the petrol to fly my helicopter of Waiheke is plummeted. You don't yeah. have
0: that <laughs> helicopter uh mind you i understand I we, heard, everybody's got a helicopter uh, exa- on the Just coming back Bernard. do you
1: think that that we're actually now in the campaign for the next election as a result of that because it seemed that national Nash- that, that national had proposed such rapid action um and then they did it it just it didn't actually seem completely mad but it did seem quite reactive and and unusually kind of interventionist in a way like it was an instant political intervention but not a completely mad one. No, politically I mean, and economically.
0: I, I uh, a little bit um, facetiously tweeted uh, that afternoon that um, the government's polling emergency was uh, trumping its climate emergency. Uh, but you are right. It has um, certainly said game on. And it said that the government, uh, when it's uh, got its back to the wall, can be nimble and can do things quickly. Mm. Uh, and I suspect uh, there's a few people on the centre left who are a little frustrated that it's taken an opinion poll showing they're behind to to um, put a rocket uh, up the government. Um, and who's, th-
1: who's running Bernard, Who's running political policy in the Labour in the Labour Party now? I mean, presumably it's not Andrew Little because he's not even running the health department. Or maybe that's what he's actually doing when he's not running the health department. I,
0: I think but. there is a team of people around Jacinda Ardern. You call it a kitchen cabinet, which includes mm-hmm. Andrew Little and Grant Robertson. Jacinda Ardern obviously... Uh, and and also uh, um, a couple of people in the Prime Minister's office. I think a lot of those decisions are taken quite close um, to the Prime Minister mm-hmm. and the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, the way I've described it is that Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson are the Batman and Robin of uh, our current Labour Party Politics at one point, um, Robertson was Batman, and Jacinda Ardern was the Robin, who was going to mm. be his deputy. But uh, through an interesting uh, collection of I events, I do not want
1: to see Grant Robertson in tights. I think
0: no, no, a cape. I think okay, looks good perhaps. in a cape, a cape, cape good, and yes. tights. I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so really, those decisions are taken closely, um, and and you'd have to say it also includes um, Jacinda Ardern's. Chief of staff, and her um, main press secretary as well, uh, Andrew. Uh, what's his name? Andrew. What's his name? Uh, uh, yes. So. Yeah.
1: There goes. There goes your pass to the next. To the next. Uh, you're not going to be getting any more masks from Jacinda now.
0: No, no. Uh, unfortunately, I've just uh, Andrew Campbell. Of course, is the chief yep. uh, press, press secretary, uh, and uh, the chief of staff there. Um, Uh, who is uh, Rajnana and uh, Mm. those decisions are made pretty closely uh, there and I think I mean they will have seen the TV news on Friday night chaos cost of living crisis queues yeah straight after the polls and gone right we need to get on top of this
1: Do, do you think this means Bernard that we're over a phase of you know we're in control of COVID we're managing it really well um i'm on television every day every day at one o'clock and and she did handle it brilliantly as we as we discussed most of the way through that we're going to get a much more febrile sort of more politically uh horse racy kind of next year or so
0: yeah i, I they'll fight and uh, they'll use whatever tools they've got. And the budget uh, coming up in May will be a key factor because they've got a $6 billion operating um, allowance, which they can dip into, along with at least $3.5 billion worth of windfall from the Emissions Trading Scheme mm-hmm. revenues. And uh, uh, one of the pieces of news this week that I thought was interesting was the um, first auction of the year of the Emissions Trading Scheme units, which went off at $70. Now that's above the Treasury forecast of 65 mm-hmm. and much higher than last year's thirty something, so that means there's at least four billion extra in money to spend. And I th- does, I, does I, that mean
1: that the emissions trading system is starting to work effectively?
0: Well, it's certainly raising money for the government, um, mm. and it's certainly increasing the the cost of carbon emissions. The frustration, of course, for those people who have been building these schemes forever and hoping that a higher carbon price will change behaviour is that the moment the higher carbon price became painful, the government cut the price by cutting the mm. fuel excise levy. So that's... Um, and, and Bernard, just going back to
1: domestic politics and because before we segue to global global, international politics and and uh, hopefully not Robert's views on Jacinda Arden's polling thing no, or, no. or um, Clark <laughs> Gayford's latest kingfisher, but Kingfish, but... Um, Nicola Willis, um, who famously quite likes a decent gin and tonic uh, in your in your office, is the new uh, uh, finance spokes- spokesperson. She hasn't got much to live up to in the sense of um, of uh, not producing error strewn uh, budget statements that end up you know being being thrown in the trash the day after they're published, but. She seems like quite an effective choice.
0: Yes, um, she's as the deputy leader and as someone who is a clean skin, if you like, uh, from all of the dramas of the last uh, uh, couple of years, um, is not connected to the the Stephen Joyce black hole, uh, fiscal black hole problems, or the... um, Keystone-Coppish. Didn't didn't we have
1: some Paul Goldsmith, Keystone-Coppish things as well? Is that Paul Goldsmith with the fiscal hole
0: in the last election? And Mm -hmm. I have to say that um, uh, uh, the combo of Bailey and um, uh, Michael Woodhouse have not been a fantastic Mm -hmm. um, uh, duo as the finance and treasury spokespeople for National. Nicola Willis is also, as you will have all seen on, as the... uh, the guest star um, a few weeks ago on The Hoon. And she did a very good job of um, arguing the case on and being quite disciplined, Mm -hmm. saying that um, nationals values are about, you know, delivering more money back into the hands of New Mm -hmm. Zealanders with tax cuts and and then essentially um, uh, fostering a property owning democracy, which is getting people into um, their first time. And then drinking all of your gin. Yes, and um, you know she's. Which welcome, is a very good start. Well, welcome to come on again uh, next time for more dinner time. I
1: think we need to start having. It hasn't. It occurred to me. I think maybe we need to have, start having cigars as well.
0: Uh, no, I don't. A, that's like against the law, inside, inside my particular. No, no, office. we're on the
1: internet. We don't uh, have to. There's nobody laws about that. Uh, no, we can we not, can do whatever we not like. Even, not yeah. even
0: vaping. I don't think. Yeah. So mm. that's big news, really, um, along with the departure of Simon Bridges, and I think. Well, is it, that is
1: is the departure of Simon Bridges big news? Other than in the Bridges household? Yeah. Really? No,
0: no, it is because he's one of the few cabinet ministers they had left. Um, mm. In fact, the, you could argue at the top the most experienced person, apart from Jerry Brownlee, that um, is in that front bench at National. Mm. He's also one of the few national politicians who was able to uh, be very light on his feet, able to uh, hit his lines, hit his marks, be quite engaging and able to cut through in some way. He wasn't universally loved, um, and he certainly wasn't, uh, he didn't set the world alight like Jacinda Ardern did when she became leader. Mm. But um, he, he was a good performer in Parliament, and also had a knack for understanding how to get a message across to a broad public. And I think uh, he is at least partly responsible for the um, the resonance of the uh, cost of living attack which National yep. have run in the last uh, couple of months. Pr-
1: presumably his his departure also halves the the, the number of Maori people more in, in the uh, front end of the National Party yes, as well. They've we're, certainly
0: we're, got a diversity issue which... Apart um, from
1: Paul Goldsmith of course.
0: Ah uh, yes, that's right. Christopher Luxon has acknowledged this and knows that yeah. for the next election they're going to have to really increase their numbers from mm. uh, all over the show. So um, it does really mean that Uh, Christopher Luxon, uh, Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop are right at the top of the party. It's now very much in their hands. Uh, And uh, I think, uh, I mean, he could have uh, flounced out after losing the leadership race to Christopher Luxon, um, but he stuck around. And once it was clear that Luxon had um, settled in and had, uh, you know, had got the wind behind him, mm. uh, he could safely um, jump on his yak and and I was going to say ride off into the sunset. But uh, certainly he. Um, uh, Jeez, you got
1: yaks, Chinese whispers, and clean skins already. Yeah, I think it's time when we went to Ukraine. And maybe that's where he's going. Or well, is is there any indication of where he's going?
0: Uh, he said he's interested in a commercial job. He's only forty five. Which is mm. sort of scary. Uh, yeah. So, so that will. That, I think it is a loss for National, and um, they are quite an inexperienced bunch now. They've had a complete cleanout since being in power as recently as twenty seventeen, and apart from Jerry Brownlee and Chris Bishop, they are pretty thin on the ground in terms of uh, cabinet experience. But uh, I'm, I'm, maybe
1: Simon should go off and run Air New Zealand. You know, kind of a a total reverse ferret. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, good. Now, um, so good to see you, um, Professor Patman. Thank you very
1: much. It's lovely to see you.
0: And I'm going to hand over to Peter to have a good old chat about
1: Ukraine. Well, when when he says a good old chat, it's going to be me making assertions to you dressed up as as questions. Now, I was really struck yesterday, uh, Robert, and I imagine you were too, by some of the Absolutely astounding language used by Putin, talking about um, uh, a, a national purification, describing the people, the internal traitors of Russia as being like a midge that had blown into our mouths that we would spit out as soon as we could. Very similar language, weirdly, to the 1938 uh, book by Stalin about, uh, about, you know, the sort of guide to communism, talking about wreckers and how they would, you know, destroy and pick away the wreckers. What's, what's going on there with, with Putin's rhetoric? Because he doesn't say anything without meaning it in some some way.
2: Well, it, it is. I think Putin's under enormous pressure. And um, basically, just to recap from our previous discussions, mm. I think his strategy was basically maybe a three or four-day uh, four blitzkrieg in Ukraine, take complete <laughs> control of the country quickly, shock and awe and all that, and it didn't work. Mm. And we've just learned um, in the last 24 hours – According to U.S. and NATO intelligence, that uh, Russia has lost probably in excess of 7,000 troops in three weeks, 10% of its armour has gone, and it's quite a grim situation. Um, actually, that well, couldn't, maybe, it
1: couldn't happen to a nicer army, really, though, could it?
2: Um, uh, yeah, and also, of course, as um, John Sweeney has pointed out, an excellent piece. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, excellent piece. He's a former BBC correspondent mm-hmm. who's based in Kiev. Um, he said... That um, apparently the, the, the troops are very badly looked after. They're being fed relabeled dog food, which is being presented as stew. So, but, yes, but remember, remember outside? just That's a minute. You know, you know who a,
1: runs? You know who has the contract to feed the Russian army? It's Putin's yes, chef. Dollygarth. No, no, yep. it's Putin's chef, who was the guy from Prigozhin, the guy from from St. Petersburg, who was also, it would appear, the chief executive or the guy who runs the um mercenary outfit, the Wagner Group. And that's right. Apparently the equivalent of Russian MREs are widely for sale on the on the internet in Russia, but they're not, in fact, in the backpacks of um of the Russian soldiers themselves.
2: Yes, I'm afraid corruption, the military has not been exempt from the Uh, systemic corruption, which characterises Russia, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Uh, But the language, you're quite right, Peter, Um, it was quite chilling. It was ominous at one level, but unfortunately it is consistent with the sort of language that Putin has used since 2012, even before actually, Mm. um, to characterise his domestic political opponents. And he singled out what he called scum and traitors yeah. is present. He also called for national self-purification. Um, it seems to me it was a declaration of war on, like, himself, on his, his own, 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 own people. people. Yeah, on his own people. I, I think um, I think he was probably rattled by the fact that that uh, producer for the state media mm. uh, program, uh, Frame I think it was, mm. and, and appeared and said no war. You know. Um, in the background, um, which I think shocked the establishment in Russia, that uh, someone who'd been working in the Kremlin state media, nevertheless rebelled, so to speak, and yeah. got a, uh, a message to the Russian people. And, um, yeah, I think he's feeling enormously pressured at the moment. I think the military are very unhappy with him. Uh, there was, I think he's, at the moment, he realises that he's, is that the, the prospects of him coming out of this well are diminishing rapidly. Mm. Mm. And I think Zelensky is playing quite a clever game. He keeps hinting that he might accept yes. no, non membership of NATO. But then we hear the next day that the negotiations are going nowhere. And he also says, oh, yes. And. Um, uh, I'm determined to become a member of the EU, which from Russians' point of view is just as bad as being almost as the- bad. Yeah, not quite
1: as bad, but al- almost as bad. I was also struck, um, uh, Robert, because you know, I, I wrote quite a bit about um, oligarchs this week. And just as a promo, there's going to be an excellent piece by Peter Bale in, uh, on Business um, nz, one of the museum's leading publications about oligarchs. Uh, and I could, I will put the link out. Actually, Bernard could put the link out to my yes, yes. Um, spinoff one, which is also superb. And also this week, I think the streets, but three, uh, my North and South article, which quotes an extremely attractive and handsome um, uh, professor, uh, international professor from um, Otago University, called uh, Robert Patman. Uh, about George F. Kennan, so that's you know basically I'm going all media, all out today. But um, that's right. That, you, you, can, that weird... you can send
0: me the 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 commission for these various various flights. You, know, you could you could pay me something more than jelly tip for being on
1: your bloody podcast. Thank you very much. Yep, yep. Um, but in that, in that same speech yesterday, um, Robert, he talked about the kind of people who have houses and houses on the Algarve and, and you know, uh, houses abroad. And he said, I don't really object to that, but I do object to them questioning Russia. And I wonder, you know, I think you're right that it was partly driven by the, by the TV producers' protest, but I wonder if there was also a little reminder to the oligarchs to just, you know, hang in there and despite their super yachts being seized in Barcelona and Italy, um, to, to stick with him.
2: Yes, I I think he's probably been stung by that some of the children of Mm. his most loyal oligarchs are publicly questioning what's going on. And um, I think the other thing is, I think Putin is wrestling with the wind. He's trying to keep the lid on things at home. He's closed down much of the independent media, as I think we discussed in the previous session. Mm -hmm. But still, um, it's difficult to shut out the rest of the world in a globalised era. And uh, unlike Stalin... And unlike previous Russian governments, it's becoming increasingly difficult. People are texting; they are still communicating. Mm-hmm. He's talking about severing Russia's participation in the internet. I, I think uh, authoritarian regimes in the twenty-first century are facing a very tough job of insulating their people and continue, you know, continuing to provide them with what they regard as the truth. Because yeah, it's
1: quite interesting, but I, I hadn't quite realised this until this week when I when I talked. To, uh, uh, hi Natalia, to a very interesting friend of mine, um, Natalia Antalava, who runs a very, very clever website called Coda Story. Um, I hadn't realised that CGTN and, and um, the Global Times and other Chinese correspondents are, in fact, embedded with the Russian forces. Um, you know, there's very few other, very little other media there, but there are, there's, there's Chinese official media on the Russian side. Just uh, the other thing that came up this week, uh, Robert, and I would like you to talk about a little bit, because I'm sure you remember this, is this idea of... Um, Uh, And it's a it's a conspiracy theory, as usual, with a teeny weeny fragment of truth in it, which is this idea of US controlled labs all over Ukraine, um, you know, producing various pathogens and so on. And one of the reasons that quite upset me when I saw it doing the rounds and the Chinese gave it a little bit of a kick along is I knew somebody in Washington whose, whose husband died at a very young age, having led the US program to go to those labs immediately after the collapse of of the Soviet Union to shield them and protect them and to encourage the the scientists involved to stay stay at them and to not go off to Afghanistan and Pakistan and do do an AQ Khan and produce other things. This was a a really legitimate attempt by the United States and other countries to protect Soviet Union um, labs and assets from falling into the wrong hands. Or from yeah. from losing their, um, you know their their abilities to, to to shield themselves from um, people wanting to, wanting to get those pathogens.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it. The interesting <laughs> thing was though, I felt the the Biden administration was absolutely crystal clear on this issue. Mm. And they said quite categorically those allegations were untrue. They didn't say it was disinformation. They mm. said they were untrue and false. So that to me seemed a pretty clear rebuttal. Uh, when, you know, they use phrases like, um, as far as we know, that's not the case, and all that sort of stuff, there's always room for manoeuvre. But it seemed to me it was quite a direct rebuttal. Also, the Chinese dimension, there's signs that the Kremlin are getting extremely frustrated with what they see as the lack of support from mm, China. Mm. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a very interesting op-ed piece by the Chinese ambassador to uh, the united states yep saying he knew nothing and of the saying of the, saying the that Russian they fully supported yep. the territorial integrity of ukraine ukraine was a sovereign mm-hmm. state um that probably would not get much applause in the kremlin and the other thing is uh, there's been various reports that china has indicated to zelensky that they will do everything possible to help rebuild ukraine after the conflict mm. and um and of course you, you china has about 6000 of its own citizens in ukraine Uh, Working there, as well as investing in excess of six billion dollars there, maybe ten billion. Mm. So Mm. they've got quite a big stake in Ukraine, and uh, I think um, some people saw at the beginning of this crisis the possibility of a sort of sinister coalition involving Russia and
1: China. It did look look rather sinister at the time of the Winter Winter Olympics, with the you know the I I noticed a picture of it yesterday that not only were they wearing almost identical suits and ties, yeah. they re- it really did look like, you know, Winnie the Pooh meets um, meet, meet, meets his meets his match and Putin, or Winnie the Putin. Yeah,
2: but I, I think the bottom line, and I, I, I think Bernard mentioned this earlier in the week. The bottom line, I think, for the Chinese is is access to the global market because mm. that's what their power yeah. rests on, and they're not going to align themselves so tightly to Russia that it compromises.
1: Their access well, to- What's what's your belief in the motivation and actuality? So the, the Americans have said that they are, you know, we now know, I think one of the things that may be happening here, or uh, let me ask you, it seems that one of the things that may be happening here is that the Americans, again, are showing how extraordinary their intelligence is. So they're leaking this idea of the of the Russians having asked China for drones yeah. and various other things. Um, but I can't believe that the, Ch- the Chinese will actually give uh, military equipment of that kind because, because of the risk.
2: I think in light of – we're seeing conflicting signals from China. I think they are divided on the issue. But I think the longer this goes on – and let's be quite clear – the longer this goes on, the worse Putin's position becomes. Mm. And also there was some really ominous news for the Russians in Ukraine this week. And that was that under the terms of the new deal between the United States and um, Ukraine, what's called killer drones, sometimes called switchblades, Mm. Um, are being delivered. Now, these are extremely advanced weaponry, and we're witnessing these appalling scenes of civilian apartment blocks being mm. uh, shelled and also receiving missiles. These this, these killer drones had the capability to locate the source of the missile strikes and go straight to them and eliminate them. So yep. it, the, what Putin... The, one of the reasons he's had to step up these missile strikes is because his army's not performing well coming off second best mm. to face, you know, into head-to-head confrontations with the Ukrainian army. Hence, he's stepped up the missile strikes yeah. and shelling.
0: Natalia,
2: let me, just, just... now second, going out the window, so he's in yeah. deep trouble because... Um, and, of course, that does worry a lot of people, how Brands said today in Bloomberg News, and I, I've got a lot of time for him. He he said that, actually, the weaker Putin's position becomes, the more likely he may become even more desperate and resort right weapons of mass destruction but mm. I, from Chinese perspective um, I think uh, they are quietly distancing themselves from the Kremlin.
1: Natalia I'm sorry we, we should bring you would you were in trying to interject there thank, thank you very much for joining us. Great, Bernard, to, to have brought you on. I'm Peter Bale. This is Robert Robert Patman, who actually also, like you, knows what he's talking about, but we never let, get, let, let that get in the way of us. What did you want to add?
3: Uh, no, I just wanted very quickly to jump potentially on two moments. The first one about China. China sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine a couple mm-hmm. of days ago. Um, at the same time, we hear about a Chinese journalist who is reporting about the war, but actually being looked after by the Russian troops. So we sort of, see again one thing is clear nothing is clear um so i thought i will i will mention these two developments which sort of again indicate that we we sort of we, we think that way but at the moment even if you read a lot of different reports including chinese reports themselves they sort of not not very clear telling or signaling where they are standing at least from the from the media reports, Mm -hmm. and my very first comment when you were talking about the the laboratories, um, on the one hand, while there is, uh, any country has all sorts of biological labs which deal with biohazards and everything, but how Russian propaganda took it on board with the bats who are targeting people who are having Russian passports, and they say, okay, they're not Russians, they will be Slavs. Well, Ukrainians are also Slavs. Mm So these are very smart bets, which can really target those who are soldiers and with Russian passports. I think the 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 the, the, the ridiculousness of this claim reached even some people who might be believing this sort of claims. But it's one thing is obvious: the 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 claims are becoming more outrageous as the campaign goes on and on and on. And there is obviously there is no solution. As such, the. The scale of of invention of the lie of myth um is growing and i think to me it's an indicator that um, these are more desperate measures Mm. uh, in order to claim to justify why things happened
0: natalia um thank you very much for coming on it's wonderful to see you um we've we've invited on uh professor patman for the last few weeks and it's been wonderful and we thought we'd uh, bring in someone who is um really familiar with uh the, the information uh, war, I suppose, that's going on for the hearts and minds of people inside Ukraine, inside Russia, but also in the rest of the world. Um, uh, Professor Natalia Chebin is uh, a, a, a professor at the Canterbury, uh, at the University of Canterbury, who focuses um, in particular on uh, uh, the issues around um, media, politics, perceptions, political communication. It's wonderful to have you on. I was going to okay. ask you, uh, Natalia, uh, in particular. Uh, who do you think is, is winning this um, this war for the hearts and minds of people around the world? On the face of it, it looks like, and again, we're looking at the English language very much on the surface uh, media, but it looks like uh, Ukraine is. But um, perhaps you could give us a sense, you know, w- what your sense is.
3: Um, thank you, Bernard, for invitation and wonderful to see Peter and Robert and this panel. Uh, And again, um, I apologize if I've interrupted the discussion. No, 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 we we (laughs) usually interrupt (laughs) each
1: other, much (laughs) much less experience. Um,
3: Yes, um, if you read the very latest article from the Washington Post, it actually says that Ukraine is winning the information war and um, the claims why it's winning the information war over russia it's because the latest address by vladimir zelensky to the u.s congress was a very powerful statement not only delivered a cognitive message but it was very strong on the motive side and it was delivered in a very professional way but also in an increasingly impactful way if you've seen the address and if you've seen the visual image which came with it it was actually heartbreaking image of once happy and and smiling Ukraine and devastation, and of course the images of wounded and dead children, um, I think were quite quite powerful. But it's sort of on the surface. I think um, th- I think we need to look at the at several levels of why Ukraine potentially is more successful. One thing is that it is um, open to open sources. It is okay dealing with open sources of information. Um, people are filming things and posting them. They are on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram, Mm -hmm. on TikTok. They are not hidden. Very often you can hear comments by regular Ukrainian people. Very often they're quite funny. It's sort of a particular sense of humor, which is a sad sense of humor. And then um, they sort of not edited they are there. so you can see a perspective from ordinary people then there is a whole set of online commentaries provided by officials of course Vladimir Zelensky who himself appears daily plus his uh, virtual diplomacy around the world highly publicized in international media as well as in Ukrainian media, mm-hmm. and of course it reaches Russian people. You cannot because these are quite big events. He addresses a rally in Italy. He goes to Parliament in Canada. He goes to Congress in the U.S. He goes to Bundestag in Berlin. Mm. And this is every day. Has it,
1: has it surprised you how effective he's been? I mean, he, he didn't have a tremendously good rating as a as a as an a, as a president in peacetime for effectiveness, but he has been extraordinarily effective as a wartime president. <laughs>
3: He was elected by seventy percent of Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that he actually got a landsliding victory at the when he was elected and it's there are lots of things in Ukraine which were not perfect before the war, corruption. Mm. Um it's still country fight finding its way on towards democracy and um yes zelensky during the peace time definitely was but you were asking you see zelensky is not the only one first of all he is a professional communicator mm. mm-hmm. sometimes people unfairly call him a clown i would like to interject here and say that he's a satirical commentator for years he's been a leader of a satirical um comedi- they're not comedians they're not stand-up it's a particular genre when they provided merciless commentary towards yeah. the political leaders <clears throat> of the country. So you don't call Stephen Colbert a clown. That's
1: Actually, sort I, of, I, I might, um, but that would be no.
0: unfair. But no, you're no, no, You're absolutely right, <laughs> Natalia. I, um, I'm particularly interested in how uh, um, the president, but also his, his advisors, think Quite deeply exactly. about um, uh, communicating, uh, and for example, there's yep. a very good interview that one of his advisors, Igor Novikov, uh, gave to David Remnick uh, from the New Yorker uh, last mm. week, in which Novikov yep. talked about the use of some really sophisticated techniques to, you know, get the message across, and it, it seemed right from the start. Uh, Zelensky was using mobile phones, Zoom diplomacy in a way that I I don't think anyone's done before. No.
3: And I just want to follow up your suggestion that he actually has a team of very talented communicators working with him. Several of his advisers, I can name the names. I don't know if you're following because I speak Russian and Ukrainian. I'm following them on a daily basis. We're talking about Mikhail Podolyak who is a member of the negotiations team. His image is sort of the guy next door, very cool, easy to talk to, great sense of humor. Talks about very complex negotiations, Mm. matters in very simple terms. At least it's lots of good reactions from social media users, including from Russia. Aristovich is, I would call him Ukrainian, Ashley Bloomfield, who is very soft-spoken, very calm, speaks in very... Uh, nice men, but about difficult things. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's Gancheruk, the member of parliament, who is sort of loud and black humor. Um, but he can say outrageous things, but it's him. He disagreed with Zelensky in peaceful times. He can. He says, at war, I'm with Zelensky. Mm-hmm. After the war, I'll again disagree with him. But there are also lots of bloggers who are not the team of Zelensky. Uh, Sergei Yakovina, Zimbaluk. They are, what is Most important, that they are all resonating against each other. Mm -hmm. Not like in the Russian case, when Lavrov says one thing, Ministry of Defence says the other thing, they don't agree, and then they try to correct Mm -hmm. each other.
1: And and I tell you, to what extent, Doug Gray asks a really interesting question, to to what extent Zelensky may be getting help in this, uh, the the communications aspect of hybrid war. Hybrid war has been something that's always fascinated me the way the Russians have played it so brilliantly. But do do you think Zelensky is getting a lot of help from, from NATO communications people?
3: It's a very good question. Before this panel, I actually went on Stratkom Riga and I wanted to mm. see if they published anything about it. They haven't published, but actually it was the NATO expert who uh, complimented in the Washington Post the skills uh, of Volodymyr Zelensky um, as an international communicator. I just um, want to stress that there is one point in all of these communicators it's humor. They all use humor, different shades yeah. of humor, irony, sarcasm, Zelensky's memes or Zelensky's phrases I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, yeah. That is difficult to advise by NATO just because humour is very culture-specific. So I think there is definitely a very talented group of communicators there, but they are also passionate about the cause, because what is happening is absolutely devastating, brutal and unfair.
1: And Natalia, may I ask, how is your family?
3: Thank you for your concern. Um, uh, I I had a mom and dad living Mm -hmm. in Ukraine. I'm Ukrainian, and um, after a very long argument was me and my sister who lives in the United States. They 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 left Ukraine. They didn't want to go. They liked their life there. They have friends mm-hmm my dad is a professor my mom is a teacher they didn't want to go but they uh, they are now in the united states with my sister um and they are still recovering after the 70 hour mm-hmm. line on the border and but wow. it's their story. And you, their story you know
1: you you are a highly skilled academic you understand misinformation and disinformation i'm sure you have to swim around in that sewer of disinformation quite a lot sometimes how does it feel as a Ukrainian to be told that your country effectively doesn't exist, that you've never existed, that you're not, in fact, from a nation, you're just from a province?
3: I never thought that I'm from the <laughs> province. You see, um I'm referring am to how, an, how, how I am, I, am an, I know I understand yeah. what you're asking about. You see, I'm an academic but I'm also one of my first degrees is about foreign languages and mm. I know that there was the norm called to call my country the Ukraine mm. and um the Ukraine actually suggests that it is a province. Yes. That's why Ukrainian government in the early years of independence actually issued the the formal note to international Media saying it's Ukraine. We don't say mm. Are they Russia or Are they New Zealand. It is Ukraine. Um, the simple but we do simple sometimes
1: say the Wire rapper or the Manama too. But that's for different reasons. <laughs> but carry on. We, we haven't yet decided to invade the Wire partly because nobody needs it. But carry on.
3: Um, but I understand your question goes mm. towards the new narrative. Suddenly, Ukraine yeah. is not the country, and the again, I'll answer with probably example from my own life because I, um, I I I grew up during perestroika years and. When I graduated from high school, they cancelled my exam in history because they didn't know what history to ask about. Uh-huh. History is a narrative, and you have to be very careful to understand that every every powerful player might want to construct history. So no, I, I, I see it's I mean you, you it's very clear. But when that was pronounced last year I became very very concerned as soon as I heard that I understood it's not it's it, it's very bad sign when when somebody re narrates the history
1: yeah Natalia but, I, could, just... could you address one other thing just for, for a second I'm sorry I, I got my head bitten off by, by somebody who I suspect comes from the what about Us left um, about my spin-off piece and he just said but you need to explain the Ukrainian Civil War that's been going on since 2014 and I thought, hang on a minute, there is no Ukrainian civil war. Does he mean the Russian-inspired insurgency in Donetsk and Luhansk? Would, would you maybe just nail that what, that, that cupboard shut, that, that it isn't in fact a civil war? And, and maybe, Robert, my like to chip in when you've spoken as well. Yeah. Forgive me, Bernard. Okay.
3: Again, as a person who is a political communicator, I'm very careful about the words. We all know, what is it? Is it, is it, Great Patriotic War of Ukraine now is it the Third World War? What is going on? So I think we have to be obviously because words are not just words they like the Ukraine, it's not just, uh, and just it's not just that simple so my very quick answer is that in 2014, we start that year with the grab in March, the Russian Federation annexed Crimea the Crimea or Crimea, but we won't go there now <laughs> um, um, and that was the first grab of land in Europe after World War II unfortunately the world didn't react how it should have reacted and um, um, it sort of I've, I think it sent a very wrong signal to the Russian Federation leadership, and then um, the Donbas um, war—it's it's war by proxy. This is we know first generation warfare when the war is done by proxies. Uh, Support—it's mm. um, it's it's not the civil war. It, it, it wasn't there before. It was instigated by the neighbor to the east and unfortunately for eight years it was an invisible war of europe forgotten war of europe according to the united nations twelve thousand people perished in mm. that war it's a lot of thousands in eight years but it sort of wasn't the, the, the no. top of the lines in the media um but due to my research and um my students research um, we've, we've been following up and it's 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 heartbreaking when a very prosperous wonderful province industrially developed and it turns into, in eight years, it turned into a ghost land. And yeah. um, yes, so it's all by proxy. Well,
1: I'm very glad to hear that you your friend. Robert, do you want to chip in on that at all?
2: No, I thoroughly agree with everything Natalia has said. I, you know, it's a, a civil war is is stretching it, to put it mildly. And uh, it, it is the annexation of Crimea and then the incursion in mm-hmm. East Ukraine um, by, was it Little Green Men, as they were sometimes called, yeah. um, the unofficial Russian army, but um, in in a sense, you know, Mr. Putin, um, I think has slightly separate question. But I think one of the the Russian economy was really hurt by the sanctions by the, that followed the annexation of Crimea. But I think, in a sense, he thought with regard to the full blown invasion or the full scale invasion that's occurred recently on the twenty fourth of February this year onwards, he may have, I think. Underestimated um, the reaction of the West based on the fact that he's been very active in cultivating allies in the Western mm. world. Mr. Putin, this is often, if I may say so, um, overlooked. Uh, that, but but since 2012, Putin has been cultivating um, conservative forces, uh, far right forces. He's presented himself as sort of international leader of. Um, The far right. And I think he may have thought after Brexit and the dislocation caused by Trump's presence in Washington that he could now sort of in sort of salami slices, taking bits and pieces from Ukraine. Now he could take the whole thing without too much uproar. But he's clearly miscalculated. One of the interesting things is how quiet all those Putin apologists in Europe have gone since the full-blown invasion mm. of Ukraine. I'm talking particularly, obviously, I was born in the UK. He has quite a lot of support from people, um, the pro-Brexiteers, in particular people like Nigel Farage know, and Boris yeah. Johnson. Could who, we, could we is, defame somebody so that Bernard's you no, know, entire financial history is gone? No, no, no. No, no, but what I, what, the point I was making, they mm. they, they were always careful the way they praised him, but they would say, oh, he's a strong leader, a bit like the Trump narrative. And I think this probably led to Mr. Putin making a huge miscalculation. Mm. Uh, but I don't, you know, it, 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 yeah, I would just absolutely agree with Natalia's take on this. And um, it, I think he's in a terrible bind now. I can't see how this can end well for Mr. Putin in no. the Ukraine. The longer this goes on, it's terrible for Ukraine. It's appalling and it's an international disgrace. And I hope the international community are going to make whatever regime follows Mr. Putin pay for the appalling damage to the infrastructure oh. in ukraine russia must take some responsibility for this just, no, no, sorry, just- as
1: an expert in misinformation just john asked us a question in the Q&A a little while ago um and it was a, it was one we've, we've dealt with a little bit but you're the expert is the only way to deal with misinformation even greater transparency and the greater exchange of more information good information quality information
3: Um, Yeah, I absolutely believe in this and um, um, I will sort of link it to something what Robert was saying that there are miscalculations and one of the miscalculations by the Russian leadership was the fact that Ukraine is a very horizontal society and a society which is linked in an sort of in a networked way we in our exchanges with Bernard we were sort of discussing these ideas. Mm. Um, Russian society is quite a vertical society and he's been historically like this but especially because of the strong leader so I just wanted to second Robert's things it's that self-image of a leader but also a very strong leader mm. I don't need network I'm, I'm enough. Uh, while in, in Ukrainian society for the 30 years of the post-Soviet existence. The civil society came very strongly to, to, to the fore of the societal life, six de- democratically elected presidents, still alive, not in jail, still um, actively participating in political process, with exception of one, Viktor Yanukovych, who escaped and left the country, but the rest are still there. and um, Civil society realized that they could be the agent of change, two revolutions later, so, what we see here, we see here a very networked horizontal society. Mm-hmm. And this is the principle of the net. Intern, inter, mm-hmm. Internet is a net. As such, that digital tool of internet, transparency, communication, regularity, speed of communication, that's what we see now in Ukraine in terms of information exchanges. But also, it really resonates with how society has transformed in the last 30 years. It may be something you never thought about, but we are changed by the media tools mm-hmm. we're using. And um, the fact that the Russian vertical is actually cutting off Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's, it is indicative that these network tools they don't they cannot control them they cannot deal yeah. with them. Just wanted, um,
0: just wanted uh, Natalia uh, and Robert um, as we head towards the end. We're, we're <laughs> answering some questions, but also just wanted to get your sense, firstly, Natalia, on. Uh, how you think this might end if it does uh, you know what direction do you think you're he- we're all headed at the moment?
3: And, um, I think it's a very difficult question as, as a Ukrainian and also as a citizen of the world, I hope it ends with uh, with the stop of active warfare Russia retreating towards the borders before 2014 um, Ukraine getting support to reconstruct itself, and becoming even better, and um, entering the European Union, and um, and and the Russian society changing itself. I might be an idealist here, but that's I. Dum spiro spero. We hope dies last.
0: <laughs> and and, uh, and Robert, um, what's your feeling on on where it's headed at the moment? There's been some talk of a peace plan, but the comments from uh, Putin yesterday. Seem to rule mm. much much out. What what's your feeling about you know whether there's off ramps or, or whether or where it goes from here?
2: Well, I I don't think Mr. Putin should be offered an off ramp. I think his behaviour and his reckless disregard of international law, the territorial integrity of a neighbour. I don't think he's created this crisis. He's going to have to deal with the consequences of it, and um, I don't think it's going to get any easier for him. And uh, he, he, you know, unfortunately, it's difficult to see a a positive outcome. There remains the possibility the conflict can spill over. Um, And uh, that might be an acceleration of Mm. the end if it does. Um, I think the Ukrainian army has really shown itself to be extremely competent, highly motivated, determined. Um, The other thing is, I think the pressures are building up in Moscow not least from the people who've supported Mr. Putin. Um, and the trouble, what I think, you know, what's so difficult to predict about the situation is that authoritarian regimes, when they do change the regime, when they change the leader, they don't advertise it in advance. We could wake up one morning and uh, Mr. Putin may be gone from the Kremlin. I think he's pretty well ensconced, so it, it, it's very difficult to envisage that. But one thing is clear... Um, he is in a very tight bind now. I can't see any way um, that he can come out of this claiming victory.
1: No, no. And everybody, Erdogan and everybody's trying to trying to give him that path. I thought it was very interesting also that Naftali benefit, Bennett, apparently Israeli prime minister, the other day was suggesting that that, that the Ukrainians should surrender and go into talks. I, I, that doesn't seem to be a good option for them either.
2: Well, I, I think that's nonsense If with respect to that gentleman. I mean, the you know, what a bad precedent that would be for a rules-based international system where the victim has to surrender to the aggressor. What sort of message does that send internationally?
1: Let let me ask, there's there's a question on here as well, also from John, about any signs of Putin preparing for an authoritarian succession uh, towards another oligarchy, perhaps. I, I don't see any signs of that, do you?
2: No, and I don't think the oligarchs have that sort of political power. I think the basis of the Putin regime early on, I think he... Disciplined one or two of the oligarchs, set an example of them. Basically said, if you keep out of politics, I won't get in the way of you making money. And I think he takes quite a big percentage as well. So this is a kleptocracy that we have in in in, in Moscow. Um, it may be that someone in Putin's entourage thinks they can do a better job than Putin. And, we don't know,
0: and we'll um, we'll see how that works works out. Uh, what should we look for on the signs there if something is, you know, up in Moscow? Um, with uh, it, it, Would it be Putin just not, not appearing on TV for a few days? Or what should we look for?
2: Possibly. Um, he seems to be losing his call cool a bit, but um, that's one, maybe an indication. I think that sounds superficial. One thing that really struck me as really significant early on as a bit of an ominous development for Putin, is that disaffected members of the FSB tipped off the Zelensky mm. government about an assassination squad, apparently organised by the top leadership uh, in Moscow, um, a group of Chechens, and that they were duly neutralised thanks to... The, I mean, the, che- the Ukrainian government publicly announced this. So if well, that's true, that, that shows there is quite significant... Opposition to what Mr. Putin's doing yeah. in the FSB, which he'd previously been director of.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. But don't forget, well, I have a, I have an absolutely beautiful poem that I would like to share with yes. the group before we, which is our skateboarding dog this week. But I, I also wanted to bring up a, a thing that Bernard, uh, that's, I'm sorry, Bernard, that um, um, uh, Putin, Putin did, which I had missed. And you, you may have a view on this, Natalia. We forget sometimes just how crass Putin can be. And apparently in the in the press conference at the end of February with Macron, he quoted a lyric from a, a Crimean punk band called Red Mold, which is describing a necrophiliac rape. And in it, Putin said, as if addressing, addressing Ukraine, like it or not, take it, my beauty. I mean, he is not a very nice man. Wow. I know that sounds blind in the obvious, but that is... Mm. i just would like
3: to quickly follow up zelinski had a response to that he says i absolutely agree that ukraine is a beauty that it is yours that's an exaggeration yeah
0: yeah, yeah I, no, that's, that's I,
1: i've got some fabulous things written down from you to tell you particularly one is um one thing is clear nothing is clear which is the one of the most eastern european sayings i've ever heard which just <laughs> goes close to my all-time romanian favorite one which is this is not a village without dogs."
3: I can have I can produce more of those (laughs) very very quick follow-up for me the the signs are the fact that at the moment there is a dissent in the media people who are the makers of the narratives and we've just seen the protest by Marina Avsenikova Mm. and in the last days the federal channels have seen massive resignations of people who worked for years for the system But at the moment, this is a new development. So this is from my perspective.
1: So Bernard, shall I close? So thank you. You so much natalia we're going, we going definitely going to have you have you on again we we normally prefer it to be to be just a couple of um old pakeha men talking bollocks but to have to have somebody both ukrainian and intelligent and, and glamorous is fantastic as as is robert robert's is, robert's the closest we come we've come to having intelligent people on so far and until you've come um now may i finish with the skateboarding dog yes Bernard? yes please which thank- you guys might like yep. so i i want to tell you some bono or Bono from U2, Um, Nancy Pelosi uh, read a poem yesterday. Unfortunately, it was St. Patrick's Day, so it's the day for doggerel. And Bono apparently has published this poem, which I'm about to read, which really is the definition of doggerel. Oh, St. Patrick, he drove out the snakes with his prayers, but that's not all it takes. For the snake symbolises an evil that rises and hides in your heart as it breaks and the evil has risen, my friends, from the darkness that lives in some men. But in sorrow and fear, that's when saints can appear to drive out those old snakes once again. And they struggle for us to be free from the psycho in this human family. Ireland's sorrow and pain is now the Ukraine. And St. Patrick's name are now Zelensky. So if that's not a twisted set of metaphors, I don't know what works, Yeah, but,
0: that's, that's really uh, interesting. I understand that the Irish <laughs> have offered uh, residency without question to anyone from Ukraine. Is Have you heard that in Talia as well? Yeah, uh, and that, that for me is one of the really amazing stories right now. There's two and a half million people who have been dislocated into the rest of Europe, and what I'm hearing from Poland and Germany and all across Europe is that so many people are being taken to families homes and uh, um, the Irish who obviously have a huge population of people from Eastern Europe who've lived and made Ireland their home have in specifically opened up and said please anyone from Ukraine come and come and live with us yeah. uh, Odd- oddly to- I think
1: Ukraine has just offered offered
0: sanctuary to Bono as well <laughs> But let me let me just let me just
1: this is this is a poetry free free zone normally. But just because I've been silly about that, let me tell you another one, which uh, which Natalia will really know. And I, if you start weeping, I will entirely understand. Dear God, calamity again! It was so peaceful, so serene. We had just begun to break the chains that bind our folk in slavery. When halt! Once again, the people's blood is streaming. And that's from Calamity Again by uh, the, the sort of core Ukrainian um, 19th century author, Taras Shevchenko.
0: Thank you very much, everyone. It's been wonderful to have you on. Um, a weekly hoon here on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey with Peter Bale. Thank you so much to Professor Robert Patman and also to Professor, Professor Natalia Chabon from... The and University best wishes of to
1: your family, Natalia. I'm so glad your parents are out.
3: Thank you, Peter.
1: We'll Thank talk you. soon.
0: No.
3: Nice talking to you. Kaka nice to, to see you,
0: Robert. See you later. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.